Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But, at, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land, and I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told... You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So reads the Word of God. If it sounds like we're stopping in the middle of a story, we are. Revelation 10 and 11 belong together. They're the latest interlude. We'll say more on that in a moment. But Revelation 10 and 11 belong together just like Revelation 8 and 9 did. That was the seven trumpets. And also Revelation 4 and 5, that was the throne room scene. And also Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches. But we're going to handle them separately just as we did with each of those other couplings that I just mentioned. We're going to ha handle Revelation 10 and 11 separately just in order to appreciate more of what we're seeing there, how this whole period works, how this description works. And we will work very hard at the same time to help them hang together in your mind, and especially this time because the, the two parts will be separated by three weeks. So we will make this linkage again, but recognize as we move through chapter 10 today that we are, in some respects, stopping in the middle of the latest round of description. As we've said in today's title, chapter 10 is the opening of a new interlude. Much like we saw back in chapter 7, 
between the sixth and seventh seals. But this time, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, it's, it's actually quite different than that one. Back in chapter 7, the focus was on promise and praise and protection. It was an exceedingly encouraging passage of Scripture, seeking to undergird the assurance of God's people in tribulation. This interlude, though, has three identifiable emphases in it. First, it declares the certainty and the nearness of the end. There will be no more delay. The end is at hand. That's one emphasis, one focus of this latest interlude. Second, it reaffirms and even extends John's commission to prophesy. You heard that in the final verse that I just read, verse 11, that he has an ongoing responsibility, and in some respects it sounds like it has even been expanded beyond at least what has been made explicitly known thus far. And then third, it clarifies the call of the church to bear witness to Christ even in a time of tribulation. We won't see that this Sunday. That's actually dipping into chapter 11 and the completion of this interlude. But it's important, as we said, to work to have these two chapters hang together. So recognizing that we're actually not done with the emphasis that this interlude is putting before us until we get through that first two-thirds to three-fourths of chapter 11. To put it all together as a bottom line, though, chapters 10 and 11 are really just getting us situated and set up for all that follows. It's a pretty significant turning point. These interludes, as they appear before the seventh, uh, first seal and now trumpet, they're getting us ready for what that seventh expression is going to mean. Uh, we needed assurance before the seventh seal was opened because that is when great tribulation began to be poured out on the earth. The seventh seal was slit and immediately the seven trumpets were exposed and began doing their work. Now, just before the seventh trumpet, there's a fair amount of work to be done to set up what's to come. The seventh trumpet won't be blown until the latter part of chapter 11. We've got a ways to go. And then, some basis that we need to establish in order to understand and appreciate what's happening. So, chapters 10 and 11 are getting us situated and set up for all that follows. So, let's explore chapter 10 today in three parts. It's actually pretty easy to identify. I think if you are just talking about the structure of the chapter, there's only two parts. There's, uh, there's the angel and the scroll in the first part, and then there's the command to John and his commission in the second part. But we're going to separate out the angel because this is a pretty striking figure here that's described in verse 1. So we're going to talk about the angel first in verse 1, and then the scroll, and then the command with the verse breakdown that you see there in your bulletin, chapter one or verse one for the angel, verses two through seven for the scroll, and verses eight through eleven for the command. Look at verse one. 
Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Because this is described as a mighty angel here, and also because of how he is dressed in this description, and because of his shout, which was like the roar of a lion, and we've met a lion already in Revelation back in chapter 5, some take this being that's revealed in chapter 10 verse 1 to be Jesus. It also sounds a lot like the description of the one who was called a man in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, whom we do identify as Christ before Bethlehem, probably the angel of the Lord in that text. And this description sounds like that. So there's some bases for believing that this being, grand as he is in his description, might be Jesus. But Honestly, it seems unlikely to me that this is Jesus for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, he's called a mighty angel. And this word angel, angelos, in the original language was never used for Jesus in this book at any other place. It would seem odd then that it would be used to define him here. If this really is an appearance of Jesus, I think he would have been described differently. And secondly... In verse 6, as we'll see in just a few moments, he swears by him who lives forever and ever, raising his right hand as though he's testifying. Seems very unlikely that Jesus would do that because he is of one being, substance, with the Father. Uh, so that's a little bit too much of a separation for Jesus appearing in this form and then making that sort of statement. So for those two reasons, I really don't think it is. It's more likely that this is a powerful angel on a very special divine assignment. But it, there's no doubt, this is an impressive being. And just imagine then the glories of heaven and of God himself if mere angels can be this impressive in appearance. Remember the angel that John meets in, in the last two chapters of Revelation. He's tempted to fall down and worship, thinking this has got to be Jesus. But until he sees God and can tell the difference. But my goodness, grand and glorious beings like this that still are created and would never in the presence of the true and living God be mistaken for him. It starts to stretch our imaginations a little bit with regard to the glory of God, as well it should. One of the primary reasons for the book of Revelation is to do just that, to recognize that no matter how difficult this world can get, it is not for a moment outside the hands of God outside of his sovereign control. Nothing threatens him. And the book of Revelation helps us see that with some clarity. So that's the angel. Let's move on. The scroll. The scroll, verses 2 through 7. Verse 2, this angel had a little scroll open in his hand, the text says. Uh -oh. 
And calling it a, a little scroll here actually distinguishes it a bit from the seventh, seven-sealed scroll back in chapter 5 that began this whole process. But surely the two are also related. And most who are reading and studying on this that we would support actually see that connection. This little scroll is also reminiscent of the scroll from back in Ezekiel chapter 2 into chapter 3. It actually transitions the chapter break there. That was also a double-sided scroll, one that had an emphasis similar to this one, but also different. Still, I think what's being emphasized here with this little scroll is that it resembles those two in both form and function. It's just not as full as a two-sided scroll would be. It's a little scroll. It's talking about perhaps the immediate future. It's revealing what's to come, maybe even in just these next few chapters but just not as fully as either of those two-sided scrolls would have done with regard to the things they were prophesying. It's probably something that simple. So if it's immediately what follows here, let's continue reading here in verse 2. As this mighty angel, uh, as to this mighty angel here, he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, that's pretty striking, isn't it? What would happen to you and me if we set our right foot on the sea <laughs> and our left foot on the land? As a matter of fact, as John later approaches his, this angel to take the scroll, I'm guessing he's keeping a pretty close eye on the shoreline, um, not knowing what happens if he sets his foot on the sea. Um, but in any regard, clearly that's not as funny as I thought it might be either, but uh, that's okay. Um, this angel is an impressive being. Having a foot on the sea and on the land is suggesting a universal message. It's, it's a message for all creation. And the emphasis on how God is named when this angel swears is doing exactly the same thing. We'll see that in a moment. So it's suggesting a universal message, but it's also suggesting that God is, is sovereign in his reign over the land and over the sea. And this is introducing something that I think is coming just shortly. The dragon that we meet that represents Satan in chapter 12. Chapter 12 finishes its final verse with that dragon standing on the land. And then the very next verse has the beast rising from the sea. This angel is representing God's sovereign rule and reign over both of these realms of creation. Then, verse 3, this angel called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. This is interesting. Uh, it's another series of seven like the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls to come. Another series of seven. What are we to do with this? And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write what I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Thunder generally represents judgment. In apocalyptic. We've even seen that so far in this book, that repeated reference about thunder and lightning and an earthquake. 
Thunder usually represents judgment, but the words of these thunders were sealed up, reminding us of Daniel 12, when part of Daniel's vision was sealed up because it was for the end times. Here, at this stage, in this book, the message of a sevenfold voice of judgment is sealed and not made known. This is huge. Do you hear me on that? This is huge. Especially for those who want to set dates and establish chronologies from this book. This is huge. This little mention. By the way, don't write down what the seven thunders say. Let's get on with what this angel was sent for. We can know with certainty that God has not revealed all that will happen because He tells us right here that there's something that He's not telling us. We can know with certainty that we don't know enough to establish chronologies about the end because He tells us right here that there's a whole sequence of seven that He's not telling us about. So this raises the question, how many series of seven might there be that we don't know about? There's at least one in that category. And only God knows the answer to that question. You see, setting times and dates and even establishing chronologies is really not what this book was written to accomplish. That's not the response that we're intended to have toward it. We're intended to be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with the Lord during such times as these, but not so caught up in the details that we think we can map it out somehow and capture the whole picture. Some things are missing by God's sovereign purpose. So our attention is best fixed on what He's actually revealed and on what He's told us to do with that. How He's told us to respond. In short, it's the title of our series. Worship, obey, endure. That's what we're called to in Revelation. We're given enough to appreciate the fact that that's, that's going to be a challenge. That's a tall order. We're going to need His help in this process. To worship and obey and endure at such times. Finally, then, this angel, like a witness in court, as we mentioned, raised his right hand, verse 5, swearing by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, verse 6, all that's now being judged, he created it all, it's in his hands, it's under his charge, he's affirming this angel with hand raised before this God, that there will be no more delay. There will be no more delay. The end is here. It's, it's coming. It's now. That's essentially what this angel is saying. He's affirming there will be no more delay. This likely anticipates what is just about to come. It's anticipating the beasts rising out of the sea and out of the earth in chapter 13. 
It also emphasizes the sovereignty of God over their rising and the timing of their rising. They're rising precisely when the angel announces, all right, this is it. So over their rising, the timing of their rising, and the judgments that they'll bring with them as they rise. They are pursuing their own will. God is giving them the go-ahead to pursue that which will result in His purposes being revealed and their judgment being magnified and substantiated. That's how our God works. It's like Joseph's words, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Our God can do that. He can use the intentional, self-directed, self-important plans of evil men to accomplish His purpose. He did it with Jesus. Beautiful verse in the Gospel of John. Boy, it's better, said the high priest, that one man die than the whole nation die. And the reader says, amen, it is. But that's not what the high priest meant. Our God is not foiled by the plans of men. So, verse 6, this angel swore that there would be no more delay, verse 7, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. That's one of the most blessed clauses in this book. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The mystery of God, this is that definitive biblical mystery. The previously hidden redemptive plan of God now made known. It had been made known in Christ. We can read about the revelation of the mystery in Ephesians and Romans. Now it's about to be fulfilled. The bottom line is about to be drawn. Again, the emphasis is on there will be no more delay. The richest and fullest passage that fulfills or that, that fills in the content most efficiently on the nature of this mystery is in Romans chapter 16. You, you could take a moment and flip over there. I'm just going to read the last three verses of Romans because they anchor down this idea of the mystery that I think John is picking up right here and I think Paul picked it up again in other passages as he wrote. Romans 16 gives us the content and nature of this mystery that's going to be fulfilled with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Listen to the Word of God. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. Do you hear the connection? Through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul writes here. This is the revelation of the mystery. John's talking now about its fulfillment, finishing this work of salvation that has begun. 
has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. What Paul is talking about there is the full salvation of the nations that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Through you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now in Christ, that's being fulfilled. And in John's day, I'm sorry, in Christ, in, in Christ it's being revealed. In John's day, it's being fulfilled. The salvation of the nations. And by the way, that includes the full salvation promised to ethnic Jews in Romans 11. Just a few chapters earlier. That was also called a mystery. Romans 11, 25. That's part of this bigger picture mystery. This salvation is not just for the nations. And it's not just for Israel. It's for both. And it's going to be fulfilled. As the seventh trumpet is blown, it's going to set forth the actions to bring it to an end with no more delay. So Paul finishes here in Romans 16 with verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And then we could all say a hearty amen together. Because that is an amazing work of salvation. Intended from the beginning. Christ was slain before the foundations of the earth. Scripture says. This is the plan and purpose of God being fulfilled. Salvation. For all nations. In the name of Christ. This word mystery first appears in the New Testament in Mark chapter 4, verse 11. There in our ESVs, it's translated secret. Jesus was explaining to his disciples that the mystery is the kingdom of God. It was revealed directly to them, his followers, but indirectly to outsiders through parables. That's what he was talking about at the time. That's the revelation. Now the fulfillment. Here at the time of the seventh trumpet, the mystery, the kingdom of God will finally be fulfilled. It will be accomplished. It will be delivered up, shall we say. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, the end is at hand and there will be no more delay. We're early in the book. It can feel funny to read that statement. That's why I'm hammering on it so much. Because we hear this glorious angel announce it, swearing to God of its truth that there will be no more delay, and yet more than half the book remains. Let's tuck that away for a little bit later this morning, but also a little bit later in our study. That means there's something unusual that unites the, the content of chapters 11 through 19. Some strange timing is going on there if this is the end and there's no more delay. I think that's precisely how this book works. Let's move on to the command, verses 8 through 11. 
Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take, eat it. Doesn't that sound familiar? Language of communion. Take, eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Just like Ezekiel's scroll, that's the language he used, Ezekiel 3, verse 3. This scroll tastes like honey, it's sweetness in the mouth. What do we take of this? What do we make of it? When God's Word, His will, His plan, when God's Word is first received, it is delicious. It's sweet to the taste. But once we digest it, once we see, just for instance, that the flip side of our salvation is judgment on the unbelieving, just as it was in Ezekiel's day, that's what followed This statement about the sweetness of the taste of the scroll is judgment, verses 4 to 11 of Ezekiel 3. Once we see that the flip side of our salvation is judgment on the unbelieving, like we're seeing here in Revelation, it can give us quite a stomachache. As I talk to people about Judgment being the flip side of salvation, about our salvation comes to us as reconciliation to God and to the unbelieving world as certain judgment. Certain judgment. That can be hard, especially if we have particular names in our minds attached to the world that's under judgment. It's sweet to the taste, but it can make our stomachs bitter. Verse 10, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was indeed sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, just as he said. Friends, verse 10 is the metaphor Verse 11 is the concrete action, the activity. John's work isn't done here, even though there's no more delay and the end is at hand. His work isn't done. In fact, it's reaffirmed and expanded in specificity. He didn't just eat the scroll, in other words, to experience it personally, the sweet and the bitter of the revelation of God. That's, 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 just, that's not what John was supposed to do with this. That's what he was called to do in verse 10. Verse 11 is what he did with it. He received it and digested it in order to go preach it. And verse 11 says, And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings, and that message will be sweet in your mouth and bitter in your stomach through that entire exercise. Because it's both the salvation and the judgment of God. 
So this charge, this charge in verse 11, takes us into the thick of this book. It takes us to the threshold of the very end, to the final judgment and the final salvation, the bitterness and the sweetness of the mystery of God fulfilled. That's what's coming. That's what John is digesting. That's what John is going to go preach. And we're going to see it. The seventh trumpet, chapter 11, verse 15, is where it appears, where it's sounded. So we're still getting ready for that. The seventh trumpet, also called, I believe, the loud trumpet by Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 31. It's called the trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. And then the last trumpet, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. I think we're talking about the same event in each of those passages. The seventh trumpet is shaping up to be a pretty significant event. That's what we're seeing. And we've had warning that that's going to be the case since Jesus was preaching. We can go back to trumpet calls in the Old Testament and see the backdrop for this. But this time, it feels most appropriate to link it with the New Testament testimonies to this event. So the seventh trumpet is shaping up to be a pretty significant event, and this is just the opening of the interlude that's inserted by John to prepare us for that event. But it is as far as we'll go this morning. Let's just stop at this point and say, what do we do with this knowledge so far? What are we supposed to do with what we've heard today? I'd like to suggest three takeaway lessons that are very briefly stated. Three takeaway lessons this morning, what we can do with what we've heard. First, embrace the mystery of God now. Embrace the mystery of God now. That's what we can do. Whether for the first time with saving belief, for those of you who haven't trusted Christ as Savior yet, or with a renewed emphasis on day in and day out trust in the completeness of His sovereign love and justice, power, goodness, in all things great and small. That's what the believer can do with this passage this morning. Embrace the mystery of God now with regard to trusting in Him. His sovereign love and justice and power and goodness in all things, great and small. His plan will be accomplished. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will stand in its way. Nothing will reroute it. Nothing will delay it. He will fulfill His saving and judging purpose to the praise of His glory. He will so embrace it here and now, today. Get on the same page with Him. That happens just by trusting Christ as Savior. Saying, you are indeed the one who has been sent for the salvation of all who believe. 
You are God's sent one, confirming by your very life and preaching, if not also your death and your resurrection and your ascension and promised return, that His plan is being enacted. No question, no doubt. So embrace the mystery of God now. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, this one's big. Don't fear any expression of evil or opposition. Don't fear it. Yeah, we need to make note. We need to respond. We need to be actively engaged in salt and light in our day. And there's plenty of expressions of darkness where the light needs to appear. There's plenty of expressions of decay where salt needs to be rubbed into the culture in which we live these days. But don't fear any expression of evil or opposition. As we just noted, no level of pushback from the seen or the unseen world will be able to impede God's purpose and plan on any level in any way. And our God... He who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Our God has not only determined the expiration date of this world that He has made, He's determined the time of day. But he will accomplish it not only without straining the limits of his sovereignty and power, but without even challenging them. God doesn't work up a sweat to bring to a conclusion the plan and purpose that he has for this world. That's a bit of a misnomer, though. It doesn't threaten his sovereignty, but it cost him the life of his son. The eternal son of God took on flesh, bore the sins of all who believed and died in their place. The definition of death is separation from God. Separated from God on our behalf, the eternal Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal. We don't understand how it works because our God never changes. The best word I've been able to come up with is a shift. There is some sort of shift in divine ontology and the nature of the relations between Father and Son for the purpose of the salvation of all who believe. It doesn't threaten the nature of God. It doesn't diminish the deity of Christ. In fact, it magnifies it. It fills us with awe and wonder at the nature of a God who can do such things, but even more, who will do such things for the salvation of His people. This is the God we're reading about in Revelation. The God who is worthy of our awe and wonder and worship. 
He will accomplish His full plan and purpose without straining the limits of His sovereignty and power or even challenging them. The bitter pill that sours our stomach doesn't give Him the slightest pause. He knows without a doubt that it reflects the meticulously precise parameters of His holiness, His justice, and His mercy. He knows, and so He doesn't tremble or stutter. So, those are the first two lessons. Embrace the mystery of God now. Don't fear any expression of evil or opposition. And third, strap in now to see how this story finishes. That's, that's what's coming. Strap in now to see how this story finishes. As Peter wrote in a quite similar context, actually, 1 Peter chapter 1, gird up the loins of your mind. That's a, that's a good thing for us to hear and do this morning. If you have a mental picture of what that looks like, gird up the loins of your mind, get yourself ready for the fireworks finale that's coming in chapters 11 to 16. Without any fear that the cacophony of of, of graphic and glorious images that that section of Scripture will include the disturbing and the delightful details without the slightest fear that it will ever, even for a single instant, be out of His hands or out of His control in any category. It will not challenge His control or expose any expression of error or weakness or overreaction in Him. What we're about to read is divine judgment meticulously measured and passing muster with the holiness of this glorious God. That's what's coming. Our God is in the heavens, says the psalmist. He does all that He pleases. And in this book, he's showing us all that he is pleased to reveal about his plan and his purpose for this world, fulfilling his mystery, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, just what he told them he was going to do. So our calling is to trust him with that. And now, come along for the ride. That's where we are as we finish Revelation 10, headed into 11. Let's pray now and then give thanks and praise to this glorious God, to the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ that has saved us. Let's pray. And as I pray, please, uh, musicians, join me on the platform and communion servers, join me at the front. Heavenly Father, this is a a stunning text of Scripture. And yet, Father, it is exactly what we should expect from a God as great and glorious as the one we see in Scripture, 
who you have revealed yourself to be there. Well, Father, I pray that if we leave with anything on our minds and hearts this morning, it would be with the greatness of the glory of God just etched upon us. The fact that the things that can so trouble and disturb us in this world are of no threat whatsoever to you. Help us, therefore, Lord God, as your servants, your appointed messengers, to reflect that light in this darkness without fear and with full trust in who you have revealed yourself to be and in what you have told us you plan to do. We ask for your Spirit's enabling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.